Well, we've been uh, traveling in this series called Grow, and every week we've been pressing uh, the limits, so to speak, on areas and ways that we can grow. And today is the day that we're going to finish that series. Next week, uh, I want to invite you, we're starting a couple of weeks on a subject called Repent. And uh, sometimes we think we know what the word repent means, and uh, sometimes we think we know what we're supposed to do when it's an opportunity to repent. But I want to challenge you to come to church in the next couple of weeks, and maybe we'll learn something new, something that you may not know about what the word repent means uh, as we continue our journey uh, within our faith. Well, daily it seems like we're bombarded with 140 characters, something called a tweet, And uh, those 140 characters uh, seem to chime into our lives where where we're told about matters of politics, but also matters of what we do and don't like about people. Um, How we communicate with one another, whether it be by tweet or face-to-face or email or actions, we have to remember that it is the whole person, it is all of us, and how we interact with one another says a lot about who we are. And I want to champion it today by saying how we act toward others and the words that we say and the things that we do really has a lot to do with our character. Character is our word for the day and how we are to grow. Um, A couple of weeks ago, there was a story in the paper. Maybe you saw it. Um, If you did, let me tell you a little bit about it. It was uh, about the Major League Baseball player who was suspended for two games based upon a word that he said. Blue Jays center fielder uh, Kevin Pillar shouted at Braves pitcher Jason Mott, and it led to a kerfuffle or a fight that ultimately led to the, the both benches being emptied. You know, you go to a baseball game, and the one thing you don't want to see is both dugouts emptying in the middle of the field with a great slugfest that's happening. But the feud didn't stop after, uh, at the game. It, it actually went on after the game and continued as Pilar shouted an anti-gay slogan or slur at Mott. Uh, it wasn't long after that that Pilar apologized, and, and uh, he was suspended for a couple of games, and his salary that he would have earned during those games is now being offered to charity as a way of showing restitution uh, on behalf of the Blue Jays organization, as well as the uh, remarks that were given by Pilar. Uh, but here's what Pilar tweeted. And he tweeted this apology. So listen to what his words said. He said this. He said, I helped to extend the use of a word that has no place in baseball, no place in sports or anywhere in society today. I'm completely and utterly embarrassed and feel horrible to have put the fans, my teammates, and the Blue Jays organization in this position. I've apologized personally to Jason Mott, but I also need to apologize to the Braves organization and their fans, and most importantly, the LGBTQ community for the lack of respect that I displayed last night. And he added these words, this is not who I am, and I will use this as an opportunity to better myself. Now, what what Pilar said is inexcusable, and it's never okay to, to use the word that he shouted out in his confrontation with Mott. His suspension is definitely the right message, but let me also say, um, I know evaluating an apology uh, for an anti-gay slur, some of you might say, well, pastor, that's ridiculous. Why are we doing that? But but I have to uh, admit that that apology that he gave is probably the best apology I've heard from a public figure in a long time. And it's an apology that really sent the signal that he actually knows what he did was wrong, and he apologized for that, 
and he was trying to make things right. He understands that words matter, and he understands that the people who follow him as part of his club, so to speak, want to know what is at the root of the character of the man that he is. Although when I read his apology, I, I also had a sad thought that ironically, some Christian groups say far worse to people, and they never apologize for what they say at all. For example, the Westboro, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church, they spew forth anti-gay slurs repeatedly, and they think that they're doing the Lord's work. What they do is they camp out at funerals of, of gay folks, and they hold signs and slogans and slurs and that are very defaming to not only the persons, but their families and the individuals who were there. And yet they do this, they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you never ever hear them give an apology for their actions. They don't see that their words and actions are totally inconsistent with the gospel message of Christ himself, that we are called to be better people. We are called to be a people of character. So the reason why I lift these two things up is because, A, it's sad that uh, uh, Major League Baseball does a better job uh, at modeling moral character than some of us do in our Christian communities. And as you've heard me say, and I'm sure pastors across our country and even world continue to say, it's in those dichotomies of those extremes that that's why so many people aren't really sure that the Christian message is the right message. That's why so many people don't see that our actions and the gospel that we profess is truth when it doesn't seem to mesh, and therefore it causes challenges, but it always boils down to character. Now, why am I bringing these things up? It's because your character matters. Who you are affects what you will do and what you will become and what you will accomplish in this life. It'll determine whether or not that you're worth knowing. Your character will be that which will attract people to you or your character or lack thereof will be that which pushes people away from you. It, it will be that which nurtures positive relationships in your life, or it will be that which will break relationships in your life. Your character is the, is, is the internal script that will determine your response, your response to failure, your response to success, your response to mistreatment, your response to pain. It reaches into every facet of your life. None of us can be exempt from what character is and how it influences the life in which we live. It's more important your character is than any talent that you believe you have. Your character is, is a larger builder of who you are than your educational background or your network of friends. The things that can open doors for you like friends and education and those kinds of things, those are good things, but it is your character that determines what you will be and who you are when you pass through those doors. Character. Character is so key, especially for those of us in the Christian community. Character is something that we must build upon, and yet character so often is something that we turn a blind eye to, that we just would rather not talk about, or we want to excuse ourselves or the actions of others. But character is the foundation of the peace of who we are as the people of Jesus Christ. Your good looks, yes, your good-looking people, your good looks, your charismatic personality, those things might get you married, but it's your character that will keep you married. Your ability to make quick decisions and, and yield productive outcomes and to uh, uh, have profitability from those kinds of things that you do, those are all important things, but it's your character that determines if those decisions that you are making are ethical, if the decisions that you are making are holy, if they are matter of fact in the image of God. 
What is true of every living creature is your character. Your character is either developing or it's deteriorating. It's not stagnant. You are not the same person today that you were yesterday. Why? Because your character has developed from where you were yesterday to where you are today. Your character evolves into that. And those events that are happening in your life yesterday, influencing as of today, those things that were bad and those things that are good have an influence as to who you will be today and the steps that you will take tomorrow. As a pastor, like all pastors, um, I've had to conduct many funerals. But one thing is unmistakably clear. There are good funerals and there are bad funerals. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but just listen to what I'm saying. There are good funerals and bad funerals. Good funerals are when we have an opportunity to talk about a person's faith legacy, when we talk about their love of God, when we have an opportunity to know the scriptures that they read and how it informed their life and the, the life in which they led was because of their leading in God. The bad funerals are when we only talk about stories about fishing and decorating. Now, I'm okay with fishing, I'm not a very good decorator, but yet when we only talk about fishing and decorating, when we talk about someone's life at a time of a funeral, we've missed something, haven't we? Now, there's, those stories are, might be important about who they were as, a, as an individual, but it's more about talking about their character. It's talking about their life in God and what that means. My point is your character not your accomplishments, not your acquisitions. It's your character that determines your legacy. If you don't believe me that your character determines your legacy, let me give you a couple of names for word association. Richard Nixon, Martha Stewart, Bernie Madoff. All individuals who were at the supreme point of their lives and their careers, talented, capable, rich, sought-after people, but it doesn't matter. Their character determined their destiny. And so your character and my character will determine your destiny. It'll determine mine. And why is that important? Because the older that we get, our character is even more important, isn't it? The problem, though, is that character is like a tree. It doesn't just sprout out overnight. Our character is something that we build up over a lifetime, but we cannot wait to the last minute like we used to study for tests. You can't pull an all-nighter to develop your character. You can't study up at the last minute. It's not a multiple choice or fill-in-the-blank uh, test that we take. It is a lifetime story in which we live, and in that lifetime story that we live, it develops and determines the character of the person that we have become. Let me ask you a question this morning. If I were to ask you, to take out a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil and to write down a couple of words that reflect your character, could you do that? Now, some of us would immediately, by asking that question, what we would immediately be uh, thought of would be to say, well, I can't really describe the words of the person that I am when nobody's looking because that wouldn't be a good thing. Some of us would go to the other extreme and we would say, well, what's the kind of character or person that I really want to be or that everybody hopes that I am? And those are the words that I will write. But the question is, what would you write? What words would reflect truthfully your character as an individual. Now, not long ago, I went to a new doctor. We changed insurance plans. You ever done that, change insurance plans? You got to wait like 
10,000 years so a doctor can see you after that, you know. So, you know, wait six months to find an, an appointment at a new doctor, and I go in and I get a baseline of, of my health and all those things. And when you go and you meet a doctor for the first time, what do they do? Well, they, they start poking and prodding at things, don't they? They take your blood pressure, they look at your heart rate, they take uh, enormous amounts of blood samples, they ask about your family history, and then comes that all-encompassing question, are there any aches or pains or things that are going on in your life now that I need to know about? Well, they always ask that question, at least they do with me, at the moment that they're telling you to get up from that really bad chair you sit in in, the, in their examining room to go sit up on that comfortable uh, table. Well, it's not really comfortable, but you know, the one with the white paper. And they ask you, well, what pains and aches do you have that you want to describe? It's about that time you stand up, at least for me, and all of a sudden your knees start going bang, 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 crunch, 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 and you walk over. It sounds like a kid popping the, you know, that, 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 those uh, things that they do that you pack with, right? Bubble wrap, there you go. Thank you, the, the person behind the curtain bailed me out there. But it's like bubble wrap, and those pains and aches come with that. But you find out lots of things when that begins to happen. And although those physical examinations are important for men my age and ladies your age and men your age as well, what we find out, though, is that a lot of us don't go through a spiritual checkup. So whereas a doctor can look at our physical body and say, yes, you are healthy, you're on the right track, the doctor does not look at you and say, your character is where it needs to be. Whose job is that? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who points out those symptoms and indicates those problems that are from a larger scale. It's God's Spirit that, that stops and asks you to take a look at the character in your heart, to really truly see who are you and who are you before the eyes of God. David, the king, wrote these words in Psalm 139. Investigate my life, O God. Fill out everything. Find out everything that there is about me. How many of us are willing to do that, to stand before God and say, God, just look and just, just let me just disclose everything that there is about me. Just find out everything that there is. And David is praying this prayer, and he's, he's saying, cross-examine me, Lord. Test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. Not what everybody thinks that I am, not what I hope to be, but God, see a clear picture of who I really am and see for yourself, Lord, whether I've done anything wrong. Now, how many of us are fearful of that? Standing in front of God and saying, just tell us anything, Lord, that you feel like we're doing wrong. That is a risky prayer, isn't it? But yet David prays that and then guide me on the road to eternal life. Doctors point out things in our bodies that can lead to sickness during physical examinations, but it's the Holy Spirit who looks and examines our hearts, and the Holy Spirit is the one that looks at the heart of our character and the character of God. And God is interested in us not only being physically healthy, but God is interested in us having a healthy character. Would you agree with me? In Acts 13.22, God testifies that David was a man that he found after his own heart, one whom he could, that God could count on to do everything that God asked him to do. And that's the kind of question I think daily we should ask ourselves. Is the character that I'm exhibiting today, is the heart of who I truly am, can God count on me to do anything it is that he is asking me to do? And our question daily should be, is that the kind of person that I am? Character, 
the foundation of that. The development of strong Christian character is the development of somebody's heart of God. Your character is who you are when nobody's looking. The things that you do when nobody sees what you're doing. The things that we go behind closed doors to hide from the public's eye and we engage in those behaviors, that's our character. Our character is also the things that we do that others see that, that we're not taking credit for. But we know that just because of how we're wired and what God's mission and purpose is in our life, that that's the kind of person that we wish to be. And strong character results in the intervention of those two cosmos colliding. How we can become the better person in private to the person in public that God has created us to be. Paul writes in his first letter to the church of Corinth, he says these words, which creates a paradox for us. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen to it. I am what I am. And as his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was what? Was in me. That Paul did what he did, not because of who he was, but because he accepted God's character into his life, and therefore that is the life in which he led. Your character and my character is fully developed by the power of the grace of God that is constantly at work in all of us. And that is a work that God continues, and it creates a conscious decision that we make every day. When we get up, when we are operating during the day and before we go to bed at night, what is the character of the person that I will be today? One time I had a, a fellow employee who was taking things from the employer. No, it wasn't the church, so this was kind of in the old corporate world. And I, I confronted him one day and I said, why are you taking those things? Now, folks, you know, it was like pens and pencils. Some of you are like, gosh, I do that all the time or pads of paper, but there were things that were owned by the company, not owned by the individual, but by the company. And he looked at me and he said, well, what's your problem? He said, everybody does this. And I looked at him and I said, no, I don't do that. And he says, well, why don't you do it? I said, because it's wrong. You don't do those kinds of things. And then I looked at him and I said, so what you're telling me is your character is worth $2.50. That's the cost of the pen that he was taking. And he thought about that for a minute. He said, you know, no one's ever explained it to me that way. No, I want to have greater, better character than that. And he returned those items and went on our way, on his way. You see, our character should never be for sale. We need to be the person striving after God's heart and enacting the plans that the Lord has for us. Why? Because they are plans to prosper us and not to harm us. They are prayers to make a difference. The writer of Hebrews says in 14, 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. You can't go into your TV or media room and think that you are hidden from God's sight. You can't go into your walk-in closet, not even the throne rooms of our homes. God sees and is aware of everything that we do wherever we are. Everything is uncovered and it is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, why did the writer of Hebrews say those words, that nothing is hidden from God, and that you and I, all of us, every day, are required to give an account of the actions that we do and the actions that we neglect to do? 
God looks at us on the inside out. He knows every secret thought. He knows every feeling. He sees our temptations. He is aware when we succumb to those things. He is aware when we step across those boundary of lines and into deeper waters that are treacherous and waters that are there to trip us up and to trap us. God is aware of all these things. God knows where your loyalties are. He knows where your weaknesses are. He knows the things that will cause you to stumble. And he watches you, how you interact with other people people. And God sees the words. He sees the thoughts. You may not speak something harshly to somebody, but you might be thinking about God is aware of all these things. And yet God chooses to do something through our character that matters to him. So it is not a lost cause, is it? That God will work through our character. The psalmist continues to write, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. You know, these are great questions to ask. Who in their right mind and ability can stand before God? Because we all are fallen to all things that we see. But yet the psalmist is saying there is a pattern there is a roadway, there is a path that we are to seek because when we are persons of good character, he says we walk with integrity, we do what's right, we tell the truth, we don't gossip, we don't mistreat people, we side with those who are right, we keep the, our word. And he brings this to our attention. And that's why the story of Ruth is so important. The story of Ruth is all about character. It's about God's character. It's a story that you and I can live within. It's a story that we can see ourselves. Ruth's story is our story. It casts for us the vision of what life is like when we are in tumultuous situations. We find ourselves in places and things and doing it in places where we don't want to be. And like Ruth, things begin to happen, but it is a test of our commitment to our character. Ruth was a woman who was from the land of Moab. She was married, Naomi was her mother-in-law. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Ruth's husband died. And in the ancient world, this was not really good at all for women because women had no voice. They had, no, they had nothing at all. It was a very patriarchal society. And if you were a woman who uh, never married or if you were a woman who was a widow, this is why Jesus said, take care of the widows. Because when you were widowed and you did not have a man that you were connected with in the ancient world, they believed that you were a nobody that you were just cast aside. And they believed that the identity of the individuals was tied to the male heir and to their land. And this is how the ancient world operated. This is the things that they did and what they saw. So Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Ruth both are widows. And Naomi partners with Ruth and says, we've got to fix this. Yes, you're a woman who's been raised in, a, in, in the wrong land, but we're going to fix this, and we've got to find somebody to redeem you, to give you a name, to give you a connection, to give you an identity, to redeem you so that you can be someone again. Now, this relationship between Naomi and Ruth is critical, and it displays godly character. Naomi takes the lead to help her daughter-in-law become reestablished. And what they had to find was what was called a kinsman redeemer, someone who was related in, within their family that they could marry 
Ruth off to so that she could reconnect to the husband's identity in the land. And right now, she has nobody. We listen to the story where Naomi coaches her and says, go, there's Boaz, he's a part of our kin. You need to go with him when he, after work and after he's had a fine meal and after he's uh, rested, go and lay down beside him. And that was an act of showing obedience to the connection to their kinship. And so Ruth says, I will do whatever it is that you ask me to do, is what she says to Naomi. And she goes and she lays down. And here's what the scripture goes on, beginning in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Boaz sees her at his feet. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, that's Boaz. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You, you have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. You now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. My fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. She is worthy of redemption. Are you and I worthy of redemption? All of that got settled on the cross, right? We are worthy of redemption. So God's story is speaking through the story of Ruth. But then something happens. Boaz, this man of godly character, he realizes that he's not really the person next in line to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. That there is someone who is closer in familial relations, and that individual, that man, should be the one who buys the land and then takes Ruth as his wife. And Boaz goes to him. Although it's true, verse 12 and 13, that I am near of kin, there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now we have to understand that Ruth is extremely vulnerable at this moment. Ruth is at this place of vulnerability because if this person chooses not to redeem her, then she is lost forever because who says that Boaz will do it? He's saying, yeah, I'll do it, but will he really carry it through? So a lot is going on with what is happening here. Boaz calls the kinsman and says to him, you need to buy Elimelech's land. You need to take Ruth as your as your wife. And the man is intrigued by the transaction, but when he hears that he must also assume the widow of this family, he changes his mind. His character is not whole. Why does he change his mind? Because he realized that if he and Ruth have a male heir and then he dies, his family will not get his land. It will go to Ruth's side of the family. So here's a man who put his possessions above what the true character was, the redemption of this woman. It says, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi and, and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot do it. I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my estate. You redeem it, Boaz. You do it. I cannot. And Boaz is given the invitation to be the kinsman redeemer. Then Boaz announced to the elders of, and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, he says to them, you are my witnesses. Now, Boaz risked everything. He could have said the same thing that the other kinsmen did. 
If I do this, I'm putting everything that I own at risk. But Boaz sees that the greater cause is what's important. He becomes and accepts the ability to be the kinsman redeemer. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who is this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. And may he become famous, this heir throughout Israel. Through the fickleness of his people, God deals with the issues of character. God sees when we make mistakes. God redeems our mistakes as we confess those, and he restores us, and he brings us back. When we exhibit rash behavior, God brings patience, and through our sinful choices, it is through the merciful eyes and hearts of the Lord that he begins to bestow that grace and mercy upon us. You see, this book, as fitting as it may be, has the name Ruth, but it's not really the story of Ruth. It's the story of God. Whereas you and I might read this story and say, we really want to be like Ruth. We need to read this story and say, we want to be like Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. And that is the life in which we see. That is the life in which we are called. That is the character for which we are to have. Why is this so important? When we look at the lineage in Matthew chapter 1, when we look at the lineage of all the way back from Abraham to the birth of Jesus Christ, we find the names Boaz and Ruth. There, they began the ancestry that led to King David. David's ancestry led to the birth of Jesus, the proclamation of the coming of the Messiah and the King. So character is very important, folks. It's extremely important. You and I are called to have godly character. The question for us this morning as we end this series is, what kind of character do we have?